I really think we're on a precipice of of addressing quote unquote idiopathic cardiomyopathy in a new way where we can look at the root causes, whether it's amyloid and there's a lot of obviously research on amyloid and new therapies for amyloid, but all these different genetic cardiomyopathies, we know there's a genetic root cause and, and now with technology, we can, you know, up titrate or down titrate almost any gene. And that's going to allow us as opposed to being reactive when we treat cardiomyopathy to be proactive. When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD from the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, I have the distinct honor and pleasure of having with me uh, Dr. Adler um, for this uh, show. Eric Adler is Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of the Heart Transplant Program at University of California, San Diego. And um, Eric uh, and I actually initially connected on Clubhouse. Um, and uh, I was really inspired to uh, hear about his story and, and about uh, what he's done for a rare disease, a rare cardiomyopathy in cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular medicine. And, um, you know, I thought would be a great uh, guest to host for Parallax because, you know, that is the kind of conversation our audience uh, thrives on and, and wants to hear. So, um, Eric, uh, thank you so much for doing this and uh, belated happy birthday to your wife. Oh, thanks so much. Um, so thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's, it's our pleasure. So, uh, Eric, um, let me, uh, let me start by asking you about, uh, your foray into, you know, medicine um, before we get into cardiology and advanced heart failure. What inspired you to, uh, to, to become a physician? You know, I didn't come from a family of uh, physicians, and I had always been interested in science, but I was actually an English major. I was interested in creative writing. I was very interested in poetry. Um, and it was about halfway through college or about a year and a half into college, I would say that I realized like my favorite writers actually had experiences to draw upon their, for their fiction. They needed narratives and um, the occupation of just being a writer without any narratives to inspire you just didn't, didn't sit well with me. It didn't seem, you know, I wanted to experience things and I loved kind of the human condition and I still really had a, a, a love for science, passion for uh, science. And I spent uh, a night volunteering in an emergency room between my second and third year of college at uh, Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. And I was just energized and fascinated by the human experience and the stories and the people and um, the pace and I came back to college to kind of doubling down on that. I was going to uh, switch gears and go into medicine with this idea that I still wanted to be a writer and draw upon all the experiences that I was um, witness to as a physician as kind of an inspiration. Yeah. Wow. So, um, you know, we're, so that, that's, that actually is very relatable to me because, you know, I always wanted to be a writer actually at, um, the, when you mentioned creative writing and poetry, I don't know if you know, I'm, I'm actually a published poet. Um, oh, wow. Really? Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I, my, my first, uh, poetry book, um, which is a prelude to a fiction novel that I'm working on actually was released last year on Valentine's day. 
And, oh, that's amazing. And, I'm going to definitely look for it. Yeah, and it's, it's an anthology of uh, 30 poems, but, you know, we can talk, talk about that, more, you know, more off the line. Yeah. So, so getting back to, back, back to your um, foreign to medicines, so that is very fascinating. And, you know, I, have, I remember Elmer's, because I, I, I interviewed there for cardiology fellowship, and um, I, I, I remember that day, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's a busy inner city hospital, and, um, you know, you meet uh, fascinating, uh, you know, people, you know, not only in the form of patients, but also, you know, healthcare providers from different walks of life. And yes, I mean, I think for, for a creative writer, that that's a very rich environment to be. That's right. The, the most the most languages anywhere in the world are spoken in the zip code of Elmer's Hospital in Queens. Uh, you know, the most concentration of cultures. I agree. And yeah, no, that's a that's a so. It's an incredible place. I only, you know, it was just this one brief night, but it, you know, it's, you have these in sometimes in retrospect, you look back at these pivotal moments and that clearly was one for me. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so walk us through what happened after, after that particular experience, uh, you know, so, so after you went back to college. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I doubled down on a, a career in medicine and kind of, uh, I actually, I made a, 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 a pact with my best friend. Neither of us were great students. And uh, we came, you know, I think it was the beginning of our junior year. And we wrote, we wrote, we were roommates and we wrote on the wall, we are going to get our lives together. <laughs> and we doubled down and, uh, and uh, he's become a successful kind of music entrepreneur and owns a bunch of music venues and uh, but he kind of got his stuff together and I got my pre-med stuff together and um, I went to uh, got into BU for med school and uh, attended uh, BU med school Um, and I think you know the next kind of pivotal thing for me was was I, I struggled with med school with the kind of the breadth instead of depth of any one thing. And it was like, I would get really into one topic and then we would move on to the next thing. And you really couldn't be efficient if you, you know, dove into any one area, right? Because you were moving. So the pace of things is so fast in the first two years of med school. So I kind of was a little disillusioned, um, was, you know, I think things have gotten better for med school, but when I was going, it was so com- it was such a competitive environment of everyone look at each other's grades and uh, this kind of stuff, and everyone worrying about what residency they could get into and et cetera. And so, I was I, I struggled um, the first two years, I would say, in terms of not, you know not academically, but just you know, almost emotionally where I, I really wanted, I w- had gone right from med residency to, I mean, from um, undergraduate to med school. And so I saw this uh, sign on walking the hallway, you know, would you like to take a year off? You can, and are you interested in cardiovascular research? And I had just done a block in cardiology, um, you know, my second year block. Uh, and it was for a one year, cardiovascular research fellowship and uh, something called a Sarnoff fellowship. And I, I, you know, I read this thing and on a whim said, you know, write an essay and, and describe a scientific question of interest. And uh, you may have the opportunity to take a year at any lab in the United States and spend a dedicated year doing cardiovascular research. So I, I went for it and applied and I didn't really know, I had, I had some lab experience, you know, throughout college. So I knew a little bit about um, how to write a scientific question. And, you know, the mentor, you had to find a mentor in your um, institution. And I was super naive, but I, you know, kind of looked into my institution who had been affiliated in cardiology and had could would serve as a mentor an application. And there was Joseph Lascalzo. So I, as a second year med student, had no idea who he was or anything. And I kind of made an appointment to see him. And I put down this essay and I see, you know, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to be a Sarnoff fellow. I really didn't even know much about it. And yeah, 
uh, I didn't really know, you know, you, when you're a second year medical student, you can, in, in retrospect, it, it actually was crazy how kind of unprepared I was to walk into that office. But uh, Dr. Lascazo was amazing. He proofread my essay. And I remember getting the essay back from him and there's like red marks all over it. And I'm like, who's this guy, you know, writing all over my essay? I didn't realize it was literally an associate editor <laughs> of New England Journal. <laughs> <laughs> you're in the second minute, you're getting edited. And, and, you know, the, the quote unquote chutzpah I had that I was just walking in, like, help me with my, you know, my second year med student essay. Um, but uh, he he served as my quote unquote sponsor for uh, my application. Of course, he, he went on to become you know, uh, editor of circulation and chair of medicine at, at uh, the Brigham. But um, this is when he was still, he was chair of medicine at BU, I believe at the time. So he helped prepare me for um, the application process and you actually do an interview and um, I was awarded um, the Sarnoff. And that was the next kind of big pivotal thing because I had to um, find a lab and and do a year of cardiac research. Yeah, but boy, you know, that, that's that's an amazing story, you know, just in and of itself, uh, you know, running into Joel Oscalzo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not knowing that he is the Joel Oscalzo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty embarrassed now just talking about it. And but... then just, uh, you know, having him edit your essay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's uh, pretty neat. Like, that's such a good story. Um, and yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. And, uh, yeah, of course. You know, with, with, with the listenership and, um, you know, I had, have you told this to to, uh, to Joel Oskeldon the same way as you know as you are uh, now to us? Or? Yeah, you know, he's been a. I haven't spoken to him probably in five or six years, maybe a little bit longer. But he remained a kind of a mentor for me. Uh, subsequently, you know, after the Sarnoff and through through cardiology fellowship, and um, always someone that I could go to and. Uh, one of the, the Sarnoff is, uh, it's, it was, um, started by Stanley Sarnoff, who, you, you know, was with Braunwald at the NIH when they were doing kind of pivotal physiologic studies, um, and is a giant in the field of cardiac physiology. And he also is the inventor of the EpiPen. And because of that, he left, he always had a thing where he'd have a medical student take a year off and spend a year in his lab. And he thought that was so important to get students out of their um, comfort zone into another institution and focus on research. And so when he, in his will, he left um, uh, to the, to establish the Sarnoff Foundation essentially, which now is, is close to 40 years, 30 years old, um, somewhere between that and um, is, focused on on giving you know between eight and 12 medical students a year off to, to do research at another institution besides their own uh, and and dr scouse was was remained a, a big part of the um, sarnoff foundation he was he eventually became uh, head of the scientific board and i think head of the board of directors even at one point so i'm um, as a sarnoff you stay in the alumni kind of for your, the rest of your life, essentially. And so uh, we meet once a year and with all the other former Sarnoffs, and there's a, a litany of, of Sarnoff alumni that have done um, great things now um, in industry and academics. Uh, so that's been a great community for me. And it was a really important year for me. I, I spent the year in uh, San Francisco between my second and third years of medical school and did uh, research on... Um, interleukin signaling in cardiomyocytes with uh, Carlin Long and Paul Simpson at UCSF. And that year, that year really opened my eyes to how research could kind of fill that itch for me that in the same way, and it seems, it seems tangential, but kind of writing and poetry and, and research is very different, but it's also about, you know, asking the right questions, creating, um, there's a narrative to research that's really important um, that has to be there. And then there's this kind of search for truth. All those things really resonated with me with, with research. I had this really impactful year. 
Yeah, no, I mean, so you hit um, some incredible notes, which are, um, I mean, you know, that's sort of my final common pathway, if you will, between, you know, a writer who's who's trying to create um, something, you know, uh, and that and that something it's created when you have that reckoning of truth within your heart, right? And and you want to sort of, uh, it's it's like uh, being the seeker of truth. Uh, I. I I I completely resonate with that um, both as a researcher as well as I mean I don't I do not do the kind of research you do I do clinical slash outcomes research but essentially you know yeah when when you said narrative for research I mean uh, you have to ask the relevant questions um, and sort of be the seeker for truth um, and then let uh, let your findings you know guide you to your next question um, uh, absolutely and and you know you can't be if you obviously there's big differences between poetry and research, but if you're not finding a compelling narrative in your story, like if you can't convince anyone else that the research you're doing is important, you're not going to get very far. Right. And we all know like the best researchers when they, when you see their talk and you might not be interested in that topic, but you, you get inspired and that's because they can kind of, they know how to uh, weave it together and, and convince you why the research is compelling. Um, and that's a big part of it. There's probably a lot of great researchers that can't do that and they never get very far. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. It's like the universe conspired for us to have this conversation. <laughs> yeah. you know, I've, I've never thought of clinical research uh, from, the, from the angle of a creative writer or a poet, uh, you know, as eloquently as, as you've described it. Um, so then, uh, so after the Sarnoff, uh, fellowship, you know, which obviously was a defining moment for you in your career. Um, tell us about residency and fellowship. Uh, sure. So I, I, I did residency at University of uh, Washington in Seattle um, and continued to do, uh, yeah, and UW is a great uh, residency. They, all the residents there at the time, um, there was no ER formal ER program at the time. So the emergency room uh, rotation at this inner city uh, hospital called Harborview was run by medicine residents and surgical residents. And that was like the crown jewel of the residency. And that was uh, another incredible experience, really impactful, a place to work and train. And I was also continuing to do cardiovascular research I uh, worked with Wayne Levy, who was another impactful mentor for me, right when he was kind of designing the um, Seattle Seattle Heart Failure Score. And I was working on, actually, we're trying to see if cytokines would be predictive of outcomes in the Seattle Heart Failure Score and, or in in a heart failure cohort, and they weren't. They're too, um, uh, they, they, they can vary so much in a short period of time. So they kind of lose their ability to have any kind of predictive value. And, but nonetheless, I got to work with Wayne, which was an incredible experience. And he remains kind of a friend and um, someone I really admire. And then I, um, I'm from New York originally. So I wanted to get back to New York and I did a fellowship at uh, Mount Sinai in New York. So I moved, I moved from Seattle from Boston to Seattle and then from Seattle back uh, to New York and started uh, my general uh, cardiology fellowship at Mount Sinai. So, you know, again, again, a great place to, to, to train, right. And to do fellowship. And, you know, the one, the one, uh, another aspect, uh, you know, although um, I, I mean, I've not been to same institutions, but, you know, I think the one aspect that is very uh, sort of, uh, again, resonates, resonates with my career path is that, for each pit stop, I call these pit stops in medicine training, right? Like, cause you, there's so many pit stops, um, before you eventually are on your own. Um, I, I've, I've gone through different institutions, like for residency, you know, versus fellowship versus two more fellowships. All my institutions were different at each stage of the game. And, um, it, I think there's something to be said about that. You know, one, obviously you make a lot of connections, uh, you know, throughout your professional life. Um, and, uh, you sort of also, I think it's a reset, um, uh, and, you know, you sort of, you, you start from ground zero and, you know, build your reputation up, you know, versus if you're at the same hospital for, you know, like med school residency fellowship and other fellowships, 
you know, sort of everybody knows you, you know, everyone, there's like a comfort zone. And so, you know, if you change institutions, you know, at least for me, it was like getting out of my comfort zone and getting uncomfortable again. And that, yeah. and that was growth for me, you know, at least to me, as I look back, that like that has always been growth for me. I, I, I don't know if you would agree or... or Absolutely. I mean, I think it's good to, to be a little bit uncomfortable. And I think, um, so I, I uh, that really resonates with me as well. And I, I think also just exposes you to things are done very differently at different places. There's different cultures and um, it's great to, you kind of bring that with you. And then finally you get exposed to a whole different group of mentors. Um, so for all those reasons, I think um, it's good to, you know, it's good to kind of move around or think about that. And uh, for different programs, I always encourage, you know, San Diego, it's hard because no one wants to move. <laughs> Everyone loves living here, but I always encourage residents to, well, you got to, you, know, you should spend a little time on the East coast or you should, you know, check out the Midwest or, um, or at least check out other institutions because I think you can, you, you just have that kind of pivotal moments at these places when you go into a new setting and you can really get settled down and, and hit a, a flattening part in your growth curve. If you stay in the same place forever, you're always kind of thought out in the same light. And so that my fellowship, uh, was, was great. It was, it was, um, at the time, our program, our chair was also a program director. So Dr. Fluster was uh, doing double duty and, uh, he's, you know, he was another guy who was just so impactful on my career in, in subtle ways and in, in, um, obvious ways. Um, but you kind of absorb things from him and how he, how he does thing that I think impacts everybody that, that does that, that fellowship. Yeah, I mean, boy, like between Joel Oskalza and Valentin Fuster, like if you've had a, an opportunity to work with those two, um, you know, I mean, you you can't ask for a more distinguished, you know, training pathway, you know, in in my in my opinion. Yeah. So te- te- well, tell us more about that. Yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think Dr. Fuster, he, you know, the, the fellows, we we, it was like we were almost like a secret service guarding him and <laughs> worshiping him. You know, he was, he just had, we were all just enamored by him. And that was partially because of his dedication to us. We knew that um, we knew he was such an international presence, but at the same time, he was so dedicated to the fellows. I remember he, he used to, wherever he was, he would fly back every Thursday to do these uh, Fooster rounds where you would, you would tell him a patient and show him the EKG. You would give him a three-liner on the patient or two-liner on the patient, EKG and an X-ray. And then he would examine the patient, but he wasn't allowed to talk to the patient. And then he would make diagnoses. And he was right, I would say, 80 85% of the time. And I mean, we would give him hard cases like atrial myxomas and dextrocardia, you know, all kinds of unusual things. And he was almost always right, but you would learn no matter, and you would learn no matter what. Um, but part of it, what I learned is just his dedication that the guy would make sure to come back 7 a.m. every Thursday to be there for the fellows. He might be in Spain and then he might be in Japan on Friday, but he would come back on Thursday to be with the fellows. And then part of it was, um, really getting grounded in physical examination, which is still such a big part of what I do. And it's kind of a lost art and it's a tragedy to me. Um, and so, and then his dedication to patients, uh, patient care. So he, he was, he, even though he was so busy, he ran a, um, a really large clinic and he would see people from all over and he would be, you know, you'd have celebrities and then you'd have unusual cases. And then you just have other patients that he would, would see and he treated everyone the same and he was incredibly incredibly um dedicated and methodical when it came to patient care um and so all those things kind of resonated that it didn't matter who you were at the end of the day you realize that part of him being him was he was just this um, fantastic doctor he was he, he he taught the art of doctoring and everyone got to spend a month in fellowship with him or two months really 
as the quote unquote Fooster fellow, where you go around and you're just seeing patients with him and you're managing his inpatient service. And that was just a ball. I mean, lots of, lots of interesting cases, lots of, uh, you know, amazing stories, things you do for these, uh, patients from, you know, all over the world, uh, royalty sometimes, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, various public figures and, um, but it was, uh, it was really incredible. And then he was doing fantastic research at the same time. So he, he taught me, he taught me how to write grants. He taught me, um, a lot about, um, about doing clinical and basic research. Cause he was really, he was really the first translational person that I encountered I would say, and that he was doing basic investigation, but is always clinically oriented. And that's kind of resonated with me um, ever since. Um, yes. Yeah, so, you know, so um, more, well, more than a couple of things uh, stand out, right. In in that description, you know, one is his dedication to fellowship and fellows. Uh, and um, it actually is not a surprise to me that when he took over the hunt for journal of American college of cardiology, he came up with a fellows section, right. A, a fellows and an early career paid section, which, you know, I think, was was the first you know for any major cardiology journal and you know other others have followed suit uh, so that's that's one um and then you know the the second which uh is almost nostalgic to my tr- my my training at the all india institute when i was a resident uh, in in india was um you know the the classic bedside clinician right uh, which um i i i agree with you like is uh, it's it's sad that 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 classic physician like that classic Vander like uh, I was I was saying Vanderbilt uh, because of uh, Dr Timothy Harrison who wrote Harrison's internal medicine um, you know I you would when I was a, a resident uh, this is more than a decade ago in in, in India uh, you know we still had those those mentors to look up to clinically uh, you know as 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 solid bedside clinicians who would you know just need a physical exam and you know, the, um, um, the Victorian EKG and, and just to, to make a, to make a clinical diagnosis. And, and, and that, I, I agree with you. I mean, that is lost. I, I, I don't see that anymore. I agree. And, you know, the, there's a lot of consequences of that. And the consequences may be, or I'm convinced that it causes more burnout because there's so much joy that comes from that patient experience from being at the bedside. And when you spend all day on an Epic terminal and you're, you're barely in the room with the patient, there's obviously, I think there's a decrease in your ability to diagnose things as easily. And I think there's a lot to that, you know, to just being good at the physical exam and being, and, um, and being present and getting a history and spending time with the patient. But I think the joy of medicine is is that experience and when you're most of your time is spent in a computer screen i see um you know and it's it's no fault of the fellows it's just a residence it's the demands on the the emr that they have to but they're really missing out so it doesn't surprise me that uh burnout is so high because they're missing what for me was and still is this such a big part of of why we practice you know yeah no i i couldn't agree with you more um, so that, that actually is, is a great segue to your current position as professor of medicine and as the director for, uh, you know, the medical director for heart transplant at UCSD. Uh, tell us more about your, your current role and how long have you been in that role and w- what, uh, what does the life of Eric Adler look like in 2021? <laughs> sure. So I've been at UCSD for 10 years. And I, I remain kind of inspired by the Foosters and Lascalzos of the world in, in their ability to have a hand in research, a hand in education, and a hand in clinical practice. And I think that, that works well for my brain, uh, my kind of ADD uh, brain set um, or mindset. So I, 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 help with administratively with the transplant program and have been doing that since I got here, helped reorganize our program after it was uh, kind of nascent for eight or nine years. 
and spent a lot of time recruiting and training um, heart failure fellows. I was the director of the heart failure fellowship. I just gave that up recently. And we've um, done great things here clinically with our heart, our, our transplant program and our heart fellow heart failure fellowship, which I helped start here. And then um, I, I still have an active, busy clinical practice. I, I do clinic um, two half days a week, uh, one transplant clinic and one kind of cardiomyopathy, uh, mostly genetic cardiomyopathy or at least half genetic cardiomyopathy clinic. And then I have a, a research lab, and the lab is, is uh, rooted in this idea of can we identify the root cause of, of inherited cardiomyopathies and the pathobiology of inherited cardiomyopathies. And so that it's all very synergistic for me because um, I'm inspired by the bedside all the time, and I bring that to the lab. And then I think a lot um, – of the things I think about in the lab, I then kind of bring to the bedside, um, maybe more than others who aren't, you know, thinking about autophagy and thinking about cell cycle and thinking about the things that you think about in the lab, but they, they can often resonate at the, um, at the bedside. So there's this, for me, there's this really nice, um, kind of double-headed arrow between the, the bench and the bedside that, yeah, that, that, uh, works has worked well and it has continues to get me excited every day to to go to work or most days not every day <laughs> uh, like everybody else you have good days and bad days but um i think this ability to kind of switch gears and go back and forth for me is really i, I consider myself incredibly lucky and ha it has served as the inspiration for all my work um, yeah, so I mean, so that's uh, that's a lot of hats. Uh, you know, there's an there's an administrative hat. Obviously, there's the the clinician hat, and then uh, a basic um, slash translational scientist um, hat. And um, I, I wanted to ask you, as someone who's who's in the early career phase and you know trying to wear all these different hats, how do you balance your responsibilities and, and roles and and try and be you know uh, progressive and productive and have a good, have a great academic output and, and clinical output and, and yet maintain a life. Like how, how, how do you do that? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, um, there's a, there's a few different, uh, pearls or wooden pearls, I would say. Um, and it, and it changes right at different points in your career. But I think in that phase through fellowship and, uh, early career, you know, I think Lascauza once said to me, or he's, you know, he said, you know, if you're going to do research and you're going to do clinical, make sure they're aligned. So your research, you know, in other words, sometimes people will be doing research on ion channels and they're working on, you know, their clinical work is in coronary disease. And it's just so much easier, more fulfilling if, if there's resonance between your research and your clinical work so they can overlap. I think, you know, if you're doing something and it seems like a chore, you're probably not doing the right thing. Um, I, 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 there's a quote by, um, and I forget his name, but a, 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 a Olympic wrestler uh, recently who said, sacrifice is what people do when they don't love what they're doing. So for me, if you're, if, if something feels like it's, it's, it's like a, um, it's, it's painful or you're procrastinating or you're not looking forward to it. It's probably not the right research or it's probably, you know, it's probably not the right thing for you, you know? Um, and so I think that's so important along the way, like continue to be inspired and not just on the topics. Topics are important, but maybe even more importantly is the mentor. Always look for mentors, look for multiple mentors. You can have different mentors in your life. And make sure they inspire you or they're not the right person. Can't just be the name or, but it has to be the person. Um, and if you have an inspirational mentor and that makes you passionate about the topic, it's not work anymore, right? You're doing it. You're thinking about it outside of work because you enjoy it. And so I think that's the secret. I don't, I think for resilience, it's important that you, and I've, I've learned lessons the hard way, to be honest. Look, you have to 
be able to disconnect and um, resilience comes from really carving out time off and being pretty strict about that time off. And that's not easy, um, whether that's clinical or, or research wise, but you need, you need to kind of, I think, of, I don't know, growing up and play video games, you know, you think of those video game characters, like where, where you're running out of power before you die. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like the little power bar, like you, you don't, you, you have to recharge your power. And so it's important to, to be able to do that. But um, the, the only other, so I think, you know, just recapping, I think um, find something that you love, find a mentor that inspires you, make sure that it doesn't feel like a chore. You know, another way to think about it is, you know, what is procrastination? Like we all procrastinate. If you, if you think about it, procrastination is usually not, it, it usually procrastinate about things that you either don't enjoy or are hard. Right. So if you're procrastinating all the time about a, a research topic, it, maybe it's not the right topic for you because you find it, you don't enjoy it or, you you know, it's you you need more mentorship. So that way you can understand it. But that's so I, I think about that a lot. Like, well, do things that you don't procrastinate on this because you probably are passionate about it. Um, and then early in career, I think some of the mistakes I made, which I'm learning about now more and more is, uh, it's really important to focus. And I think I spread myself too thin early on. I said yes to everybody. And so I was writing papers on uh, migraines and I was writing NPFOs and then I was writing papers on and doing stem cell biology and I was writing papers on palliative care, kind of all over the place. And you know, you, you expel a lot of energy, um, but you don't actually move the ball forward. Whereas if you can really focus on a topic and start thinking about almost like your brand, who are you? What are you going to be known for? What are you going to really make a difference in the world about? If you can do that early and stay focused on it, um, you can be very um, impactful. Um, you know, I think of Les Cooper, um, who trained at UCSD and started doing, you know, re research on myocarditis when he was a fellow. And, you know, he's, he, re, he remains the kind of, you know, the seminal authority on myocarditis to this day. So I think really being focused in your career in the early parts um, is very, very, very important. And Fooster used to say that to me all the time. He would just walk by me. He might be running a plane and he would be like, Eric, focus. And I was like, what is he talking about? What does he mean? And it's, I don't know if you've had that experience, but you know, 10 years later, you think back about an encounter in a hallway when someone said one thing to you, like, ah, that's what he meant. And so for me now, the idea of focusing on a topic and, and knowing what I, uh, I'm going to, um, you know, where I'm going to make a dent, thinking about I only have so much energy to give in so many areas. Um, I wish I would have taken that more to heart earlier, but I certainly take that to heart now. Yeah, so no, no incredible insights. And um so, 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 couple, couple things that have resonated here. Um, well, so a shameless plug. You said make a dent. That actually is uh, the name of my nonprofit. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's so makeadent.org, You know, which in part uh, hosts these podcasts. So, so that's okay. fun. So, so that, that just uh, it was perfect. It's like perfect PR. <laughs> so thanks for doing. Yeah. That. <laughs> I didn't know it. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, but you know, so what you said is very important. Um, you know, I, um, so, so Dr. Kapadia says that to me all the time. It's like anchor focus, you know, he's, he's my department, he's my department chair. And, you know, he was, he was my attending, at, uh, you know, he was mentor for me at UW. He was, a, he was a interventional attending yeah, and awesome. he, 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 yeah, he's an amazing guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that, yeah. He, he's, he's a great guy. And uh, so he, he says that to me, like, uh, so like I just had my annual, uh, performance review. We have that as faculty every year. And uh, he was going over, you know, uh, just scholarly activity, and and he's like, "Yeah, focus." And I think it's time for you to like, you know, up up the game and you know, look, start doing prospective uh, studies. Because you know, I mostly my all my research is observational, uh, right? Looking into databases and uh, you know, administrative databases and, and meta analyses, what have you. And he's like, "You're asking the right clinical questions, um, and you're getting stuff published in, in high impact journals. I think it's important for you to now." 
uh, focus on doing prospective stuff because that's like that's the next level for you at this stage in your career. So he, but he, he every time I see him, he's like focused. It's like okay, I get yeah. it. <laughs> and he's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's one. My my second uh, so second would be so, and I I I, I you know I've I'm, maybe I'm, I'm going to the same. I I, I wouldn't personally wouldn't call it a mistake. I think I'm just exploring myself. You know, I think uh, in in part. Um, if you're multifaceted, which I think a lot of, I think a lot of cardiologists tend to be, or, or at least that's what I've come to be exposed to, you know, going through these podcasts, which like with fascinating cardiologists, I think. Um, and, you know, uh, we, um, I think Kaushik had, had done a clubhouse session with Marielle Jessup the, the other evening. And, you know, she was also commenting on this, that, you know, you can, you can explore and then, you know, find your niche, um, and it could it could be different for all of us. Or like I'm, I'm like I'm sure you gained a lot of experience writing those papers on migraines. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you know maybe it was just an experience, and you know you were just exploring yourself. And you know look, you're doing some incredible stuff with 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 Dan and disease. And you know I I, I think it's um, you know maybe it was just it was just your your path, right? And each one of us is going to have our own different paths. Um, yeah. And I think, I think it's good. You know, everyone will say like, learn how to say no. I yeah. think it's good to say yes a lot, especially yeah. early in your career. Mm-hmm. And so I think you don't want to be, you know, I think you want to be open to things and trying things. And, and some one, someone once explained it to me from like a developmental uh, biology standpoint, like it's okay early on to be kind of this undifferentiated a stem cell, <laughs> you know, or you think of a hematopoietic stem cell on its journey to become like a, a platelet or a red blood cell, and you go through these different uh, phases, but you you slowly kind of learn things and whittle your way down, and then you move. And that that process is, I do agree with you. It's I I did learn a lot, and um, and it's it's okay to. I think you also you kind of people don't realize it in their fellowship and early early career but people are really um, judging you. People are really taking note of you, you know? And if you're the person that says no to everything all the time, people do kind of be like, oh, that guy, you know? So I think it's good. It's good to help out and it's good to try different things um, as you to figure out. And then when you find that kind of important thing though, it's great. It's, it's really good to hop on it for sure. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more that people are taking note of what you're doing um, and, and you know, how, your ability to get things done also, right, is, is incredibly, is important. And I think your ability to stay clinically busy, productive, and yet be able to have, you know, like a portfolio, uh, an academic portfolio, at least in, you know, in, in an academic, um, you know, career is, is extremely important, or at least that's how, that's what I've learned so far. Yeah. I'm, I'll be finished. I'll be onto my fifth year. I would, I would be onto my fifth, starting fifth year this summer. My last fellowship was in 2017, summer of 2017. Gotcha. Um, so I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and you know, I, um, like a lot of, a lot of people and societies, you know, define early career, like everybody has a different definition. Uh, but I, I just, I think, um, you know, I think for several years, right after your last fellowship is all early career. I don't know if, I don't know what you, what you would, would say to that. Yeah. I think, um, those years, there's kind of this disconnect and it, it's true regardless of what you're going to do, whether it's, um, you know, pure clinical practice, private practice, research, whatever it is, industry, everyone kind of thinks, oh, when fellowship is over, that was the hard part. Now I get to move on. But actually, I would say the hardest years of, of training, maybe even are those first three years as, as, as out of fellowship and everyone or most people, I should say, not everyone, I don't want to be too too dogmatic, but most people struggle in those years. A lot of people switch jobs. A lot of people kind of move around. They're learning their practice. Um, So it's a tough time because all of a sudden, you know, you know, in June, you're a fellow and in, in July, you're making the decisions and, and fellowship now, especially is so, you know, obviously, depending on the fellowship, but there's so much oversight now and lack of autonomy in general, that's been a a trend. So that part is really hard. And then making a career for yourself 
um, academically in those first few years is, is really important. Um, in the academic sphere, especially, it's just so important early to have a mentor uh, that looks out for you and that's quote unquote protecting you and um, that's available uh, to you um, that can make or break everything, you know? Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I've, again, you know, I've, I, I, I switched my first job uh, after, uh, you know, like a year and six months. Um, and um, it's, I, I couldn't agree with you more that um, actually early career is the most, um, I think, um, I, maybe, I think turbulence is, 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 is an appropriate word to, to describe it because I think there's a lot of, uh, I think, self-discovery, right? Like how you make decisions, like what biases you have. Um, and, you know, like clinically, um, what, what decisions you're making, in, you know, whether it's taking care of patients in the ICU or in the cath lab or, you know, as outpatient clinic, um, you're, you're discovering yourself. You're discovering um, your decision-making abilities and, um, and also, you know, your interaction with, with peers, with seniors, with fellows. Um, so there's, there's a lot of self-discovery, I would say. And, and I, and, and, and like academically, I mean, you're, it's, it's tough. Like you, you want to establish yourself clinically. Uh, you know, at least that was an important, um, you know, milestone for me. Um, and, and also still trying to be productive academically can be extremely taxing on you. And, you know, I think biologically, like, you know, for me, like I was, you know, we, we were also starting a family. Uh, so. Exactly. That's, that's the, that's the heart of the, the, that, that, that's common. And I think, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's such a hard time because you're juggling right when you're needed most at home is when you're making your mark at work. It's this. And so I see that a lot in junior, junior faculty. It's all the confluence of this personal stuff, which is really important at that, that age usually and professional stuff where you're really needed and need to make your mark. So it's tremendously stressful. It's stressful on families. Um, it's stressful on relationships. Um, people think, and, and then relationships, especially people think you're done, you're, you're, you're done. So now is the good part because you've kind of been waiting to be done. Right. And then it's, you realize, well, Oh, actually this is just the beginning. Wait, I'm working. There's, there's no work hour restrictions for me anymore. Right. So it's like, you're working the hardest you are. So you're building, you know, but I would say that's the time when you've got to kind of, you know, this is, it's, it's, there's, there's usually not an easy way out and it's, it's, it's putting your head down and, and, and recognizing that you are, people are kind of state taking stock of you, whether you like it or not, your patient interactions, people are tempted to say, Oh, that's the, the, the researcher who just, who doesn't know what they're doing clinically or, or that's the clinical person who doesn't know any idea about research. So you, if you're going to try to balance and juggle these things, you've got to be excellent at both. Um, you've got to do, you know, you, you, you can't be okay at either. You'll be, you know, so it's a really, it's a challenging time. It can be a really fulfilling time and exciting time because you get to make your mark. Um, but that's where having the right job. And, you know, it's funny, so many, um, fellows are so stressed about that first job decision. And I understand why it's stressful, but in hindsight, you know, part of me is thinking, Oh, you might change your job anyways. <laughs> Don't worry too hard. <laughs> Most people do, you know? Um, but, um, anyways, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I mean, like the, the national statistics are like, uh, it's like 66% or 70% people switch jobs within the first year. Um, right. And that's out of the, uh, the, the ACC committee, you know, that I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. ACC committee. Uh, So, um, so, you know, so great, great insights. And and thank you for sharing that with us, Eric. That's going to be worlds of wisdom for our listenership. So, so tell us about, um, you know, your research with inherited cardiomyopathies, you know, that's, that's the exciting part. Sure. Yeah. So I think for, for, well, a lot of this, again, started for me at the bedside. And when I look back at a, most of the research endeavors, it's inspired by um, by patient interactions. But my my work in, in genetic cardiomyopathies really started right around, um, let's see, so 2000, 
three, 2000, I would say 2006, rather, we were learning um, that you could make stem cells from people's skin. You know, this idea, uh, uh, Shinya Yamanaka's idea of making pluripotent stem cells from skin. And I was doing a lot of research on, on regenerative medicine, on making embryonic stem cells into cardiac myocytes. And I had been part of a lab, uh, another mentor of mine named Gordon Keller, who's like a seminal stem cell researcher who developed a way of making um, embryonic stem cells and cardiomyocytes. And right when that was happening, uh, Shinya Yamanaka was coming up a way of making this from skin. And what that did is it allowed us to take skin samples from patients and, and use those to make cardiomyocytes, beating cardiomyocytes. And right away, this, you know, I had a light bulb go off like, wow, we're, we're going to be able to study human cardiovascular disease in a way we've never done it before, because we're going to be able to study human cardiomyocytes in the lab, in the dish at a molecular level. Um, but so I was, I first started doing that with patients that had long QT syndrome. So those were patients, I, I took care of a patient who had a cardiac arrest and made pluripotent stem cells from them and studied long QT that way. And then, um, I started, con I continued to be inspired by various patient interactions as a heart failure cardiologist. And I would carry around a skin biotome with me and take little pieces of skin. And everyone's like, who's this? crazy person was doing skin biopsy, but what I was doing was bringing back cells to the lab. Um, and we, I was part of a group that made the first kind of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy model in a dish from a disease called leopard syndrome. And that was in 2008, something like that. Um, I moved, I then, I subsequently moved to Oregon for my second job at OHSU. And I was taking care of a patient who died unexpectedly and with, both a cardiac and skeletal myopathy. And we never really figured out what was going on. He had a skeletal biopsy that suggested um, possibly Pompe syndrome. But in the lab, we had taken his cells and brought him back to the lab. And a fellow that was working with, with me named Stacy Clegg, she's, she grew up, she had, I had taught her this technique and she grew out the cells and made cardiomyocytes and figured out that it was Danon. It wasn't, um, wasn't uh, Pompe's. And I didn't even know what Danon was, but we sequenced the cells ourselves. We found the mutation. We made a, mo a model of disease. And uh, we've been really focused. I've been very, you know, taking, finally taking my advice to heart and Dr. Fuster's advice to heart and said, I'm going to, you know, I, I'm going to focus on this disease because not many people were studying it. And I knew it was a really interesting, it's a disease It's a disease in extreme, like Danon um, have the heaviest hearts ever described on record. Um, it has almost 100% penetrance in boys. So because of these kind of terrible features of the disease, it makes it actually uh, compelling for study and learning a lot of biology. Um, it's a disorder of autophagy, and autophagy is this process that's, uh, you know, um, ubiquitous in every cell, but particularly important in the heart, probably related to diabetes. So it resonates a lot, the study, understanding the uh, autophagy. So we use Danon to study how autophagy works in the heart, how the heart recycles um, proteins, which is what autophagy essentially is. Um, and then more recently, in the last two or three years, have decided, you know, there was a pivot point for me where I said, well, I can just study basic mechanisms or I can really um, try, to, try to develop a therapy. And so based on, you know, a lot of patients started contacting me because they knew, you know, patients with Danon, I started to really um, empathize for people who are suffering from rare diseases because no one, uh, no one studies these, uh, no one understands these patients, right? Um, when they go all over the place before they're even diagnosed. So they're reaching out to me from Australia and from all over the United States, like, thank you for studying Danon. We know our, you know, basically they know, the moms know their kids are going to die um at by age 20 so it inspired my research and we decided to switch and as opposed to just being mechanistic to to do translational research and have uh, developed a gene therapy in the lab for Danon. um and that's now in clinical trials uh and it's, it's really exciting to see something you know it started at the bedside from a patient bring it back to the lab we developed in 
develop this gene therapy and then go back to patient care. Um, and it's only possible because of all these mentors that, you know, along the way, whether it was uh, Dr. Fuster or um, Roger Jar was a mentor for me in doing gene therapy at the time. So I was getting to engage with him some. And uh, I mentioned Gordon Keller, who helped me learn about stem cells. So all these kind of things came together between patient care and research. And, and that's really uh, morphed now to where I really think we're on a precipice of of addressing quote unquote idiopathic cardiomyopathy in a new way where we can look at the root causes, whether it's amyloid and there's a lot of obviously research on amyloid and new therapies for amyloid, but all these different genetic cardiomyopathies, we know there's a genetic root cause. And, and now with technology, we can, you know, up titrate or down titrate almost any gene. And that's going to allow us as opposed to being reactive when we treat cardiomyopathy to be, Proactive, so I I think it's the dawn of kind of this new era in in cardiomyopathy. I think Dannon is what we've done in Dannon may and hopefully will be one example of a very rare disease that we took this approach in. But I think there's many more. I think a lot of people are are starting to recognize that. So you know, just like cancer was 15 years ago when people had cancer, if you had lung cancer, they treated the same. If you had breast cancer, they treated the same. Now everything is based on the molecular root cause and we're seeing changes. I th I'm hoping that happens in cardiomyopathy. I'm very optimistic that we're on the precipice of, of, of changing it. Um, I was actually in the ER yesterday with my uh, daughter who had some allergy and the ER doctor was explaining to my daughter, sometimes we call something idiopathic, but it's really idiopathic. We just want, don't want our patients to know that we're an idiot, that we don't know what we're talking about. And I thought that was funny. And I said, you know what, maybe that hopefully that's true of idiopathic cardiomyopathy that we can, that we're, we're actually good, don't know what we're talking about, but we need to do that. And as a consequence, as we, we can develop new therapies. So that's kind of front center of what I'm doing right now. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's exciting. It's uh, very inspirational. You know, the, your description of, um, the, the, the discovery of, uh, uh, the path that you took to, um, you know, hopefully, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers, hopefully cure, uh, you know, Dan and disease. I mean, it would be tremendous for all those families, right? And, uh, you know, I'm sure the, the connections that you've made uh, internationally and the families that you've, you've come to know, and they're all uh, praying, uh, you know, as, as I am, because uh, I think the most special well, first off, I think the fact that so hope hope is hope is incredible, right? Like hope is um, that quintessential um, uh, feeling or, or emotion, um, or you know, the existence of hope is is everything for for anyone. And uh, I think if you can, um, so there's a sliver of hope for all these families and and. Uh, you know, for all these kids and, and, and you're sort of, uh, I mean, you're, you're their North star. So they're, they're my, they're our North star. You know, the most impactful thing I, I did was make sure that families come by the lab and that the families meet the physicians doing the research because it just all of a sudden becomes so much bigger than, Oh, I have to go, you know, do this gel or read the CKG, you know, once you see the, you know, see the impact that your work could have and how many people are counting on you, all of a sudden everyone is inspired. So I think trying to make improving um, quality of life and quantity of life and keeping that the North Star for everyone doing these projects, uh, it's so important, whether it's your study coordinators, the, the statisticians, you know, people in the, whoever it is, like constantly remind them of the mission, you know, or whatever you're doing in life, like being rooted in your mission. Um, and, and that mission can be hope for sure, you know, and providing hope. Um, it, it makes it so impactful for everybody. You know, it's like a life force. I hate to sound philosophical, but it becomes the kind of the center for both the patients and the providers. You're on the same team. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, that's what, like, uh, that's the driver, right? Like, that's the light that you're... Yep. That's, that's the, that's the energy. That's like, that's the genesis of your energy for going, getting up and going to work every day. Uh, 
Absolutely. And that's, that's so important. Like for all of us to find that, that source of inspiration is, is key to, I mean, I think, so, I mean, that, I mean, like, the, and, and when you have that, you'll never burn out, like burnout will never happen. It's funny too, because so many people in life, you know, they, they get drawn to money as if money is going to be that North star, but the people who are really successful, the money, all those things come, you know, but it's really the cause that, that is what's prizing the satisfaction, you know, and if it always just becomes about how I can make more those money, those are usually the most unhappy people <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, boy, it's been, it's, it's been, it's all, it's like 58 minutes and 44 seconds. It's, gotcha. it, it's been such a great conversation. Like I, I didn't even realize how yeah. this hour went by and thank you so much for doing this, Eric, any closing remarks for our listenership, for our audience and your thanks again so much for, for your time and for spending the evening with us. Uh, uh, well, I'm just so grateful for, uh, you know, um, giving me the opportunity and just getting to chat with you. And I think, I think we've got to hit on a lot of really important topics. So um, I'm happy uh, and available to, t to talk to people as things come up and keep, keep focusing on your, you know, it sounds cheesy, but I, I believe it focus on what you're passionate about. And, and that's the definition of success and you'll be there. So I, 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 and be generous with, with others because uh, they'll help build you up even more. So be constantly mentoring others and you'll you'll get the more satisfaction than you ever imagined so yeah no i couldn't couldn't, couldn't agree with you more so uh, again thanks thanks everyone for tuning in and uh, you know how to, how to leave us a feedback um if, if anyone wants to speak uh, in person with dr adler uh you know eric is there is there an email they can write you or yeah yeah sure they can you know i'm i'm on twitter or um they can email me at uh eradler at health.ucsd.edu or, you know, um, if you Google me, there's uh, links to my lab's website and contact info. So feel free. I'd love to hear from yeah, you. Yeah, perfect. And, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that, uh, you know, the show notes have this information also. And, you know, thanks again, Eric. Um, yeah. Thanks for reaching out. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. All right. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.